In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to discuss with you tonight the whole concept of home. For many of us, it's more of a concept than a reality. By home, I mean a haven, a place where you really belong, where you can have some stability, a sense of settledness, uh, where you're not worried about accusation, where you don't feel defensive, you're not worried about being antagonized, there, there aren't deadlines, a place where panic can fade away. When I think of home, those are the things that I envision, and it's an elusive concept, because I just raised the stakes, you know? It's an elusive concept for many. I think about all the refugees in the world right now, the refugee crisis where people's homes have been reduced by bombs into ash. And I think about all of the homeless vets that I met on the streets of Philadelphia, And I think about people who have lost their homes because they've lost their jobs. And they've lost uh, any sense of stability for themselves or for their families. And I, I think about the other ways in which we look for home. Sometimes we look for a sense of home in a, in a local family so that no matter where we're living, as long as we have each other, we're okay. But then you know as well as I do that fissures can develop in a family and sometimes the fissures are so deep and so wide that there's no real way to bridge them. And so family doesn't become terribly stable. And sometimes people put a lot of stock in their children. They say, well, if our marriage isn't going so well, at least we have somebody else to love and we can pour our love into our children. But what do you do if you find that your child grows up and doesn't call you anymore and doesn't want the proximity that you want and you've lost a sense of home. Some people find home in ideological agreement that as long as I have a circle of people, if I have a closed group on Facebook with whom I can share my ideas, at least we can all agree and find a a, a camaraderie together. But you know as well as I do that the the, the more tightly drawn are your circles, the more rife for, for uh, disagreement it gets, right? You probably disagree in life with people that share 99% of your perspectives, but they don't agree on the 1%. And so sometimes we can lose a sense of home even with those uh, whom we normally would, with whom we would normally agree. And for some people, it's a, a career. If I just had the right career, the right path with successive successes, then everything would work out well for me, and I could feel a sense of achievement and settledness. But sometimes you drift more than you think, and you don't really arrive. I remember the day that I lost my sense of home. I remember it. I can still see it. I was 12, and uh, my parents were picking me up from camp. I went to camp in the middle of the state. We were driving home, and I noticed that my parents were eerily quiet. They were often quiet, but the silence was deafening and strife-filled. I was complaining that I was hungry. I mean, I was 12, and I needed to eat every seven minutes or I might die. 
And so my parents begrudgingly pulled off, and we went into this really dumpy pizza hut. And uh, I remember that my parents were sharing between themselves very sharp whispers. I couldn't make out what they were saying. All I know is that my mother started to quietly cry, and she got up, and she left the restaurant, and I heard the car door slam. Then the pizza came to the table. My dad just said, box it up. They did. He put it in the trunk so that it wouldn't stink up the car. And we drove home in total silence, and the next day, my dad was gone. That was the end of any sense of home that I had as a child. And maybe you had a Pizza Hut moment. Maybe you had a truck stop moment. Uh, maybe there is a day that you remember where uh, your stability, your solace was lost and, you, and it's never really come back. The thing is, the fall in Genesis 3 must be understood, at least in major part, as the loss of home. It's not just the dark engineering of corruption and guilt and death. It's also the loss of a home, a loss of a sense of settledness, a loss of belonging. The exile from home is a muddy river that runs throughout the course of the whole Bible, right up to the 21st chapter of Revelation. You think of Adam and Eve from the garden, exiled from their home, poor Ishmael in the wilderness, exiled from the covenant blessing of Abraham, at least the full blessing, You think of poor little Israel, exiled in Egypt, exiled into Assyria, exiled into Babylon. And then when they finally did get their home back, they had a functional exile into the Greeks and the Romans. You even think about how this theme of exile from home works its way into Jesus' parables about the man who had two sons, and the younger of the sons came to him and said, Father, Give me my share of the inheritance now. And then he went into a foreign country and spent his money on riotous living. Goes into a willful exile. Oscar Wilde uh, rightfully pointed out that everyone is born a king, but all kings die in exile. Well, for nine straight chapters, Amos has forecasted the exile as a certainty for Israel. Even if they repent and turn, they will enter into a very dark experience for a long time. But now, right before they are about to lose everything, and they're only a few years from it, from losing everything, Amos loans a lamp to Israel before they go into exile. And he offers them a few words to remember, a few words to carry with them into the pain, words of promise that one day you will come home. I want to focus tonight on those promissory words, which we find in verses 11 through 15. Verse 11, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Let's look at a few things. First, the timing. The timing. In that day. Now, what day is that? Amos, in preceding verses, just described it. The day of judgment. The day of holy reduction. The day of sandbox toys. When God takes out the sieve and he shakes the sieve until all of the sand falls through the sieve and the only thing that remains are the pebbles big enough not to fall through. That's judgment language. God is going to take the nation and shake all the unrighteous out of it. In that very day, God in that day motions to reverse the exile. When things look the bleakest, that is the hour of your visitation. This is God's way. I don't know why it's God's way. I wish that he wouldn't wait so long before he enters in, but he chooses the midnight hour. The dawn breaks when no dawn is predicted. This is God's pattern that goes all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis, where in the darkest hour yet, God, uh, who has cursed judgments against the serpent, and then the woman, and then the man, says to the serpent, right in the cursed judgment, there is one coming, the seed of the woman, and you will injure him. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. In the darkest moment, God includes a promissory note that only becomes louder and louder and symphonically fuller as the text rolls on. But a note that says, the dawn will break. And that's what we have here. In that day, when the world is shaking, I'm about to reverse everything for you. I think about our own hero, Thomas Cranmer, the author of the Book of Common Prayer, a timid man by nature, but he was grasped by the gospel when he learned it in a pub. No kidding. He was in a pub called the White Horse Inn, drinking beer, reading tracts written by Martin Luther, discovers these ideas about free grace, and it made him a new person. And so he decided that worship in England ought to be in English and Bible should be in English and we should be able to talk about these ideas without restraint. The powers that be had other ideas. And eventually, after a a difficult regime change and Mary Tudor came to the throne, she put him in prison and had his Bibles and his prayer books burned in city squares. Little Little piles of them on fire right outside his window so that he could see his work being eradicated from the face of the world. And then, what makes it worse, he goes uh, to his death and is burned. He's tied to a pyre and set on fire, and no angel comes to visit him, and nobody brings him a cup of cool water. And he dies, perhaps believing that everything, everything in this dark hour has been in vain. 
and the powers of the world won. And yet here we are. And here are a hundred million other Anglicans this day, worshiping around the world because of inspired things that came to Thomas Cranmer, that even in the darkest hour, redemption was born. And isn't that true for you? That you look back on one of those pivotal moments where God burst in, entered in, where you thought that life was Sartre's you know, no exit, and God made a way. Timing in that day. Also a singular cause. Notice who is the actor, the architect of the homecoming. Verse 11, I will raise up the booth of David. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people. Verse 15, I will plant them on their land. God's initiative, I will. When history's grand utopia arrives, it arrives only because of the hand of God. In other words, human beings are not the engineers of great and lasting societal renewal. Uh, The human attempt to engineer a utopia is as old as Babel's tower, also as failed as Babel's tower. Lots of different versions of this utopia. There are political utopias, race-oriented utopias, ideological utopias, and religious utopias. Lots of attempts to create a new Eden. There's the French Revolution and the Kingdom of Reason. There's Hitler's Third Reich. There are, well, at least locally, the Harmonites, who in 1880 decided that it would be a good idea to create an existentialist Lutheran celibacy cult. I mean, doesn't that sound fun, really? The Harmonites. I have a photograph in my library of the last Harmonite woman alive, dressed in a morning gown, arms crossed, looking as bitter as possible. And if I were the last Harmonite alive, I'd be looking pretty bitter, too. And now we have the caliphate, seeking to create a new world under Sharia law. All of these things will face us at one point or another. Illusions of grandeur, invitations that you, if you join the right movement or have the right ideas, can change the world. You can do it. Remember the I will from Amos chapter 9. and You are not the I. I will raise up the booth of David. I will restore the fortunes of my people. I will plant them on their land. This is why, friends, we call it the kingdom of God. God. And in the kingdom of God, it is not so much that we search for home, but home searches for us. Home looks for us. So timing, singular cause, and a new leader, a new leader whose task it is to bring about a reunion. Verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. A few things. The booth of David, raising it up. He's not here talking about a massive construction project to build a new mansion for the new monarch. He's talking about the monarchy, 
the monarchy that will be uh, revived, resurrected from the dead. Because after Solomon, and we've talked about this, the nation itself uh, experienced a divorce. The north and its ten tribes separated from the south and its two tribes. And Jerusalem, David's city, where his booth was, was in the south, in Jerusalem. And so this text is prophesying that the Davidic line, and David was the archetypal king of the Old Testament, the Davidic line would rise again and Uh, And remember, Amos is ministering to an Israelite audience. These are northerners who have been cut off from the south, cut off from David's booth, cut off from Jerusalem, the capital city. This suggests that in the future, whatever future may be, there will be some sort of reunion where these factioned groups will come back together again. And it's even more than that. What will this son of David, this new Davidic line, accomplish? It says here that he will cause you to possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations called by my name. Now, what does that mean? Possess the remnant of Edom. Is that militaristic language? Is it talking about conquering yet another group of people and enslaving them? It can't mean that because he's talking about nations that are called by my name. And in the Bible, that's only positive. And so it seems to suggest that what will happen is that under this new king, other nations will find their fullest identity as they are grafted in to God's people. What's remarkable is that it lists a particular nation, Edom. What do we know about Edom? Amos has spent a lot of time talking about Edom, especially in the first chapter. Edom is listed several times in the judgment oracles of the nations that surround Israel and are making Israel's life difficult. God is saying to all these nations, for three sins, even four, I will punish you in these ways. And lists Edom as an abuser, a torturer, a beastly empire that is making Israel's life a waking hell. And here he's saying, I'm going to bring Edom into. Edom will be engrafted. And all the other nations engrafted into what God is doing in the world that under the new Davidic king, even the worst can recover. God is more generous and liberal and boundary-breaking than we might assume. Jean uh, Anouy wrote a play entitled The Last Judgment. In the play, a, a group of religious folks cluster at the gate of heaven, eager to enter, eager to march in, sure of their rightful place. They grow rather impatient, though, because they keep seeing other people enter the gates before them. And some of the people entering the gates of paradise look rather ragged, unseemly, irreligious. Some people whom they knew from other churches who didn't preach in the same way or teach the same thing. So they start getting angry. They start saying, look, look at her. Look at him. Look at this. Are you kidding me? They get in too. They get in. I can't believe this. After how hard I've worked, I can't believe he's letting people like this in. And they get so angry that they create a frenzy and start cursing God himself. And that is the very instant that they themselves are damned. They judged themselves, excommunicated themselves. That 
is the last judgment. But God has somehow, in the mystery of this new David, this new monarch, made a way, even for the Edomites among us, to walk right in. So this new king can secure a reunion. If we consider the remnant theology of the Old Testament, where God takes the sieve and shakes it until all the unrighteous are out, there's only one pebble left. Only one. Only one faithful man can endure the shaking sieve of God's justice. Only one who is worthy to become king. And only one who in that position would, strangely enough, become for us an exile that all the exiles would be brought back home. So we have a new leader, along with a singular cause and interesting timing. Lastly, a new home. Verse 13. The plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now remember, Amos is a gardener. God called Amos to leave his gardening and become a prophet, and now God leaves his judgment and becomes a gardener. God puts down the sickle, not into harvesting, that's judgment language. He's now into planting, which suggests that Israel is going to be back in their land for the long haul. This is a permanent move, never again to be interrupted. And notice what they're planting. Yes, fruit trees and all sorts of things, but mostly it's grapes so that they can make wine. And there's abundance in this passage, abundance of wine, where the mountains will look purple. The mountains are going to be running with sweet wine, it says. Uh, Wine, as you may know, is a biblical sign of letting loose, really, of being relaxed, of feeling, you know, warm fuzzies, of feeling okay. And there's a lot of wine in this passage. There's a lot of wine in those middle chapters of Isaiah, too. In the day of the Lord, one of the signs that he gives us to communicate the joy and exuberance of what's about to come is a grand party with an endless supply of wine. By the way, not surprising that Jesus chooses to inaugurate his ministry with a wine miracle where he takes the water of purification rites and transforms it into 7,200 glasses of Montorchet. This is the message to Israel It isn't just that you're coming home, which is good enough. You are coming home to a home that you have yet to experience. You thought you had it good before. You're going to have a home that is going to be grander than Eden itself. Eschatological language. Heavenly language. The promised land in the Bible is often a picture of what is to come. And this language of grandness, of celebration, of stability is the home that people are inheriting. Uh, Many of you know that I worked for three years for Habitat for Humanity. I worked mostly in inner-city Philadelphia, particularly in New Kensington, which is a great place to take a vacation if you are insane. Uh, And uh, 
New Kensington is a very dangerous neighborhood, and you do not build houses. You take crack houses or, or dilapidated houses, and you refurbish them. That's what we did. I remember one, um, one woman named Cheryl. She was a feeble and sickly, um, very old African-American woman. And she was selected to be helped by Habitat. Now, normally, if you're young and able, Habitat makes you work 200 to 300 hours in what they call sweat equity. They make you work on other people's houses as people are working on your house. Well, Cheryl was too old and feeble, so she didn't have to do it. Our goal for Cheryl's house was to make it the nicest house in New Kensington. All I know is that on the, the functional ribbon-cutting ceremony day, when uh, lots of friends and neighbors dropped by, uh, and she opened the door and fell. She fell right in the door frame, her hands out in front of her. Uh, not because she had tripped, but because she was so overwhelmed by what she saw. This beautiful home made just for her. And she was sobbing, heavy, heavy sobs, baptizing the doorframe with her tears. This is a kind of home that she never thought she would ever have. But now she had it. That's just a little story to illustrate the point that when they go home, when we go home, it's not going to be like it is now. It's going to be grander and different. No eye has seen, you know, no ear has heard, no heart has comprehended the good things that God has in store for those who love him. So that's, that's God's promise through Amos to Israel. Just as surely as you will go into exile, I will bring you home, I will bring you out, and you will never, ever go back again. Home. The thing we long for. The thing that is sung about and written about in all those love ballads, all the medieval fairy stories, the hero myths, they're all pressing into something, this sense that we need to move beyond what we have, and that maybe, maybe, God has something grander for us. A closing word about exile and about home. Exile. Everyone alive, every day, experiences exile. Exile will take one of two forms. Either we will be exiled from God, or we will be exiled from the world. It's like a coin that can only face in one direction. First Peter, too, puts it this way. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, God's possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And then he says, two verses later, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You see what he did? You totally belong, and you don't belong at all. Before, you were a friend of the world, and you were an exile from God. Now, you're a friend of God, and you're exiled from the world. But it's either one or the other. This is why repentance, friends, is so hard. Turning to God? Are you kidding? We think that's an easy thing? Scripture likens it to death. Crucifixion, in fact. 
because it makes us misfits, freaks, aliens, strangers, out of place, with commonly accepted norms, with social acceptance. And isn't that what we all want? Confession. I don't just want social acceptance, I want 100% social acceptance in all circumstances and seasons. I want everybody to agree and like me at the same time, always and forever. World without end. Is that too much to ask? I mean, maybe you want the same, yeah, of course you do. Don't we all want that? And so repentance puts us at odds, not with everything in culture, but with many things. It will always do that. The church will not always fit in well. And that hurts because we love social acceptance. I had a friend, who was a, he's a colleague in, in my former denomination, very good guy, serving in a, in a good church. And we were talking and mourning the compromises that that old body has made over the years. And this denomination has, has lost a third of its membership in 10 years. I mean, it's just a substantial... Uh, decline and a really terrible situation. We were mourning it together. And I said, what do you think went wrong in the old church? And he put it more helpfully and succinctly than I've ever heard anywhere else. He said this, we never really loved the world. We wanted the world to love us. Instead of becoming a light to the world, we just became the world. Exile. We will all experience it, and it's very hard. But there is a promise for those exiles from the world, a promise of home, and not just a home, but a home that moves toward you. The promised land of Amos is a picture of our future, when Israel and Amos and all the peoples of God will walk together amongst emerald cities and Merlot Mountains. In the meantime, as exiles together, let us love one another and take care of each other. And let's not fight all the time. Let's not be curmudgeons. Let us not be ruthless. Let's take care of each other as we await for a home which most certainly comes our way. Because in the end, Oscar Wilde is wrong. Not all kings and queens die in exile. You won't. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.